0: Welcome to a Voice for the Horse podcast, hosted by Steve Halfpenny. Steve is an internationally recognized horsemanship educator, Melbourne Equitana presenter, and lifelong student of good horsemanship. His passion for learning about horses and helping them become willing partners to their owners is only exceeded by a willingness to share what he has learned with horse owners everywhere. Welcome to a Voice for the Horse podcast. Today, our guest is Jeff Sanders. I'm really pleased to have him over. It's been a few years since uh, we first met, Jeff. So.
1: Yeah, it's been a few. Yeah, good. Well, um, it's been a couple of years since I've been able to get over there to Australia because of all the craziness. But yeah,
0: yeah. I, was, I must. I was thinking yesterday. I was actually riding. We've got a working equitation course we built since you were last over, and I've been. Remember promising you that I was going to do some cantering sideways over a pole before you saw me again. So I've started to work towards that. So uh, i just thinking, you know, if we hadn't met, I don't know where my horsemanship would be today because uh, it's really, you've changed my life completely in the way I ride. And and probably because of you, you've changed a lot of other people's life that surround me.
1: Well, I've probably frustrated a lot of people at least.
0: <laughs> well, you don't know what you don't know, huh?
1: been good and it's been um having the chance to to travel to australia was has been awesome and i'm really looking forward to when things open up and i can get get back down there again because i do i do miss those trips down there so yeah
0: yeah i was just looking through your website you know and it's got your history a little bit and i was just thinking i read it and i understand it you know but for people that have no idea what? What is a vicario? vaquero? And basically, uh, why is the Central Coast of California so special when it comes to the vaquero tradition?
1: It's a really good question. And what really what it comes down to is the California vaquero horsemanship kind of took the Spanish vaquero that when, when they colonized California, it took that horsemanship, that old European Baroque kind of horsemanship. And it really refined it. And the reason that we were able to refine it there on the central coast, particularly, a lot of it was due to weather. So you had the culture of the Spanish Vaquero with the pride of the horsemanship. And, and culturally, you really, um, you gained your reputation and your prestige in the culture by your horsemanship. You know, back then it wasn't fancy cars or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. It It was how well you rode your horses. But then because of the weather, they had a lot of time. Um, and then they also had the indigenous Indians there that were doing all the manual labor. So the Spanish really kind of became royalty in a sense and had the time and the opportunity to really devote to their horsemanship. So, I mean, there would be thousands of horses on that one person would have on their land. So they could choose the best horses and then the winters are, are mild. The summers are mild. You know, the only reason not to ride is you're afraid of getting wet. I mean, that's, that's really it. So they were able to put a lot of hours horseback and really take those, those really, um, time proven Baroque horsemanship skills from Europe and then refine it down even more. Um, and then apply that to the cattle work. So, It was kind of like the perfect storm of horsemanship, basically.
0: Yeah, because I guess other parts of the United States have got totally different weather, like up north in Montana and places like that.
1: Absolutely. I lived in Colorado for a while. Um, I lived in Nevada for a while. The weather is completely different. You've got, like Nevada, you've got long, hot summers and long, cold winters. And when I was in Colorado, spring, summer, autumn are not too bad, except that Summer's pretty short. I mean, one of the ranches that my cousin runs in Wyoming, the middle of summer, so for us, um, July, we got snowed out from from Brandon Cows. So they kind of have a running joke. Yeah, they've got a running joke there when people say, what do you do in the summertime? And they say, oh yeah, on that day we go fishing. So <laughs> yeah. But California, the middle of winter, we're still roping cattle and riding the horses and we never had a covered arena. We never needed it. Um, never had to take a day off in the summer because it was too hot. It was just, you know, it was just kind of ideal conditions.
0: And then I'm just looking at your heritage, you know, you're not a read-it-from-a-book sort of a guy, are you? You've actually... Your whole family goes back generations.
1: Yeah, considering how poorly I read, that's probably a good thing. Um, Yeah, my dyslexic brain, I wouldn't be able to read it from a book. Um, Yeah, my family started in 1854 um, riding stock horses on the coast of California up around uh, an area called Petaluma, and both sides of my family have been doing this for well over 100 years, so all of this has really been passed down um, through the family, and We've got other family members who also married into the culture or um, family members who had horsemanship skills from the Iberian Peninsula, from Spain, from Portugal. Um, so, yeah, it's I was just I was raised with it and I was lucky to be born in a time where some of this still really uh, this culture was still really strong in the area where I grew up in San Ynez, Santa Barbara County, um, that kind of kind of area there.
0: Wow! Yeah, and you were riding basically as soon as you can walk, from what I gather. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, uh, there's a picture of my mom nine months pregnant, uh, horseback. So uh, before, yeah, before I was born, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep.
0: Great start, though, to have uh, parents like that to to watch you along the way.
1: The good thing for me was not only the the instruction from my parents; it was also the culture around me um and then being able to ride good horses so I learned from a very young age what correct horsemanship should feel like and what a good horse should feel like and then the people around me I remember the first branding that I went that I rode in I was probably about eight years old and we were roping and of course I you know I didn't know what I was doing I was young and I was trying to rope a calf and I kept missing and I got really frustrated And then I side passed my horse over and I just took my rope and I just threw it down on the calf and it went around his head and I pulled the slack. And I remember one of the old, the old car there. He says, yeah, good. Don't worry about the rope, ride your horse. And and that lesson stuck. It wasn't about the fancy loops. It wasn't about how well you could rope. It was about how well you rode your horse.
0: Yeah, that was, that's a big lesson I got from you, you know, the, the horsemanship is always first. And it's like, yeah, every time my horse is a little out of shape and I'm trying to do something, I can hear Jeff yelling horsemanship first.
1: That's okay. Cause I hear my parents yelling at me too. So, but my dad says it a little different. It's like, Hey, you idiot. When did you forget to ride? That's yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's really great, you know, for me to have met you because I don't know whether you can address this, but there's. I think there's a fair bit of misinformation about how you should be riding in hackamores and and some of the gear that you grew up riding in. Yeah. Didn't make sense to me at the time. And and I met you and then it's now I know why it didn't make sense to me.
1: Yeah, it happens a lot. And I mean, kind of every weekend, I just finished a clinic. I'm actually sitting in Finland right now, of all places. Um, We just did a cow clinic and we had that exact topic come up because a girl had tried a -a hackamore and it, it didn't work. She would, she said, no, my horse doesn't like it. It doesn't work. Well, the, there was a couple problems. One, the fit and, and how the hackamore was made, um, cheap eBay hackamores aren't going to cut it. Um, it's, you know, it's like, it's like taking a, a, just a junk motor and putting it in a Ferrari. It's not a Ferrari anymore. Um, and then the way she was riding, the way she was using her reins, it just wasn't, um, it wasn't ever going to be effective with the hackamore, and one of the problems I run into a lot is people have a lot of people have experience with the snaffle bit. Snaffle bit's the most common tool used on a horse anywhere in the world, but the way most people ride a snaffle bit, you can't really ride a hackamore that way and be effective, because there's no there's no pain compliance component really to the hackamore unless you just really abuse it. Um, with a snaffle bit, well, it's very easy, even accidentally, to create a pain compliance response. So one of the things as we're working with our horses, that's kind of important to keep in mind, is: are we working on a a pressure and release kind of response, or are we working on a pain compliance response? And the two are completely different. And if we try to ride a tool that's based on pressure and release, the same way we would ride a tool that that functions more with pain compliance it's it's not going to work and the other part is that a lot of people because of that they try the hackamore and they struggle it doesn't work for them so the immediate response is it must be the tool that the tool must not work so i hear a lot of people talking about a lot of things that they say you can't do in a hackamore but kind of my default is that anytime somebody tells you what you can't do in a hackamore they're really telling you what they can't do in Hackamore because we haven't found anything yet. I mean, high level, like the kind of stuff that you would see at the Spanish writing school in Vienna. They're doing at the Royal School in Germany in a Hackamore, And we do regularly, you know, all of the high level classical writing with the half pass, the pirouettes, Piaf, Spanish walk, uh, terre, terra, which is cantering, just cantering on the spot where you're just in place cantering, all of that stuff we can teach in a hackamore and we've proven it over and over again.
0: Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? How people, you've probably ridden with people where they can see what you're doing and they'll still tell you it's impossible.
1: Yeah. 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 Even on their own horses, even when I do it on, even doing it on their own horses, but, but, but he can't do that, but he's doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is a little tough because it's, it's human nature. Um, talking to Dr. Robert Miller, he, he um, some years ago, for those people watching this who aren't familiar with who he is, he's the one that wrote all the books on imprinting falls and all of that kind of stuff and really good about uh, horse behavior, those kind of things. And at one point, um, we had, I had one of his horses, his wife's horse in training. So they came and you know, we were eating dinner, talking about horsemanship as you do. And he said, you know, because people are a tool using species, we focus primarily on the tool. And that's kind of what happens. If the horse isn't working, we immediately think, oh, it's the tool, which is whatever's on their head. And because we're also, because we a tool using species, we use our hands for everything. So the tool that's connected to our hands is where we put most of the emphasis, and it's just human nature. And when that tool doesn't work, it must be the tool, it couldn't be the rider. Couldn't ever be the rider. It's got to be the tool that failed. So then we get some of these myths and stuff about the hackamore because of that.
0: Yeah. So I I found since, you know, trying to follow what you've been teaching that it's 90% about how I use my body, you know, maybe 10% how I use my hands nowadays.
1: Yes, absolutely. Horsemanship is a dance. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a mechanic with a wrench working on a truck. It, it's, it's dance and in dance, you use your body. Some of the best students that I've had, the ones who it's been the easiest for to pick this stuff up have been people with very extensive experience in dance or martial arts or gymnastics or those kind of things, because they know how to use their body and they're able to not rely on the tool so much. Really good, fine horsemanship, in the old style at least. You know, it's 90%, 95% seat, leg, balance, posture, and maybe 5% with the reins, where most people ride at the opposite.
0: Yeah, I think I probably mentioned it to you before, but I remember when somebody mentioned you to me, you know, and I do the typical... Get on Google and see who this Jeff Sanders guy is and see what I can find about you. And you, there's a Palomino horse you were riding back then, and I think it was going to be for sale.
1: Yeah, it was when I, yeah, I had him in training.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I can just see you doing, you know, half passes left and right, and, and I'm sort of trying to zoom in because you've got one hand in the center of the mane and it's not moving. And I go, he's bending to the left, he's bending to the right, he's changing directions, his hand's not moving. And my brain goes, that's impossible. There's some magic stuff going on here, you know. And uh, that's the body. And I'm trying to work out what you're doing with your fingers. Yep. Great. Right. And what I love about you, you know, you you follow the why. You know, you've gone back into history a long t- way to to see where it all came from and, and why it's developed into what it has today do you find that helps people understand?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think why is the most important question in horsemanship. That's the most important question in horsemanship. It's not how, it's not what, it, it's why, why are we doing the things we're doing? And why am I choosing one way of doing things over another? Cause there's so many ways to do things in horsemanship and you know, I take lessons. I I think it's important that everybody, um, I wouldn't ride with any instructor who doesn't take lessons because otherwise their horsemanship isn't growing. It's not progressing. But when I take lessons, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I want to know why I'm doing it the way I am. Why does one way work better than another? Why is one easier for a horse to understand? Why is one way more, um, more in tune with the biomechanical movement of the horse as opposed to a different way of doing things. So I think that why is the, is absolutely the most important question the horsemanship by far.
0: Yeah. And even though I've had, you know,
1: go ahead. We've got that little delay, but yeah, go, no, go ahead.
0: You know, I've had lessons with you. And then you, I think I bought your first book, you know, when your book came out. And it's amazing. I guess when you write a book, you have no idea what people know or don't know. You know, so you have to put all the little details in. And after reading the book, I went, wow, that's another little thing that I never picked up when we were face to face. So it was really great. And I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, the book and the, the amount of time and research you put into doing that.
1: Yeah, it's... Um... There was kind of a running joke amongst my students for quite a few years that when's the book going to be done? When's the book going to be done? Um, and I had I had three problems writing the book. Um, one was just that it, 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 did I miss anything? And and I did. I, I mean, I there's lots of stuff that I didn't get in the book um, that I'm working on actually the second edition to the Hackamore book now. Um, so with the Hackamore book being my first book, um, you know, it's anytime you do something for the first time, you know, there's always glitches and stuff. Um, but the the big thing was the research and getting the research right. So the historical research, um, also really, like you said, making sure that I tried really hard to not just take things for granted that, oh, you know, people know this. Um, a, a really simple one is even when I'm just talking about the Hackamore. Depending where I am in the world, um, if I'm in England, they're thinking of a mechanical hackamore. They're not even thinking of a rawhide hackamore or a bozelle. So it's, um, you know, looking at that, that was that was a pretty tough project. So the number one was making sure that I got the information across. Um, number two was the time to write it. And uh, honestly, the COVID thing helped me a lot with my writing because I was, I was staying home more. Um, so I finished a second book. But the big thing for me was um, towards the end, as I was working on that Hackamore book, I was living in Spain in the winter, and every year I was busy teaching in the spring and the summer and the fall, and then I thought, oh, I'll finish it in the winter, and then I would go live in Spain, and the weather was beautiful, and I would ride. (laughs) Um, And then the other was just, it was a mental block for me to write the book. I'm severely dyslexic. And I really struggled in school. If any of my teachers ever found out I wrote a book, they would they would tell you it was impossible because I never read a book. So um it was just that whole, you know, that mental thing of no, you're gonna do it, just it's gonna be whatever it's gonna be, and get this stuff on paper. Because honestly, the the main reason I even wrote the Hackamore book was because I read a lot. I looked through a lot of books and and took a look at a lot of stuff that people had written and it just seemed like there was a lot of information that was missing. And I thought, you know, I better put this on paper while I'm still above ground um, just in case somebody happens to be interested someday. Because as of the moment, I just hadn't seen anything that really answered the questions that needed to be answered.
0: No. And there are, and there's some books out there that lots of people follow, you know, but that they are totally different in, in how they they explain everything.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, again, my, my stuff might be different, but it's because it goes back to the old traditional horsemanship. It goes back to the old traditional California horsemanship. And even within that tradition, you know, there was good, bad and ugly, just like there is in any horsemanship. Um, I was fortunate. My uncle. Um, He was considered one of the top Hackamore writers in California in the 1940s, 50s. Um, And, you know, when some of the other books were being written, um, you know, my dad, my uncle, they were actively doing all of this. And the problem at the time was that if you weren't really in the culture, if you weren't born into it, married into it, um, no one would teach you. So some of those books that we see are people from the outside looking in trying to kind of reverse engineer what they're seeing they got some things right but they got some things pretty wrong also and then with the modern stuff a lot of that is just modern sport it's sport training and unless you're doing that particular sport what they're doing with their training may not apply. I had a good example of this the other, um, uh, the other day. A few weeks ago, uh, I was teaching a cow clinic in Nevada, and we were talking about this uh, because one of the students had been taking her horse to a cutting horse trainer. She doesn't train cutting horses. She doesn't ride cutting horses. She doesn't wanna ride cutting horses, but she took the horse to a cutting horse trainer. And we were talking about, you know, if you have a dog that you want, a, a cow dog that you want to work and use on a ranch, you don't take the cow dog to a bird dog trainer, to somebody who's training hunting dogs for for hunting birds. And when we talked about that, you could see the light kind of go on. And she went, oh, yeah. So what's happened in the sports stuff these days is everything's become so specialized that they have their own way of using particular tools. And a lot of it doesn't apply to general horsemanship anymore because of how specialized it's become.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I, I guess if you were a vaquero back then and you saw somebody watching, you might deliberately steer them in the wrong direction. Huh? So, you-
1: yeah, or you would allow them to deceive themselves. So, um, so a good example of this, there's a book out there that the guy says the old vaqueros didn't use their legs. Um, and that's a perfect example. If you rode up to one of those old vaqueros and you said, Hey, it, it doesn't look like you use your legs. No, I don't use my legs. And he would smile and right away <laughs> and allow you to just leave with that idea in your mind, not thinking, well, if he doesn't use his legs, why do he spend so much money to buy those fancy silver spurs? You know um, and the other is that most of the time those guys wouldn't take a horse to town or to a branding that was not well trained culturally, anytime you took a horse out in public. So whether it was at a branding, which back then was like the, the horse show, um, or you were helping your neighbors gather cows, or you're going to a faria, to the fair, to the festival, you always took your best horse. So the training process was not visible to the outside world. And so much so that culturally, um, I, I grew up with that. When my dad, I remember several times we're riding, um, we're schooling horses at home. Somebody would drive in the ranch. My dad would stop riding. He'd stop training. Even though I knew he wasn't done, he would stop training. And I remember as a teenager getting yelled at because I was doing some stuff in the warm up arena that was showing too much of our training. So I was working like transitions from half pass to leg yield and you know that kind of stuff um changing changing leads every couple strides you know those kind of things and into a half pass or whatever it was and my dad hey don't do that people don't need to see that you don't need to show them what we're doing just warm up go go in the show arena keep that stuff for at home um, cuz if it wasn't part of what we were doing in the show then we didn't show we didn't we didn't expose that to the public because those were the things that allowed us to have an edge, like in the rain working cow horse class, being able to do a half pass into the cow, being able to leg yield away from the cow, where everybody else is kind of going straight with the cow and we're moving sideways. He didn't want people seeing us do that. Um, he didn't want, you know, in the in the training. Yeah. So culturally, that was always part of the of that old California traditional horsemanship.
0: Yeah. And I think I remember you saying, you know you do some day work to get on the ranch, and you know you're getting very little money to do it, but that's not why you were doing it
1: <laughs> exactly It's to get the horses out and and you know for a while and this is one of the things that you know you're always going to have critics and i've I've had a number of critics say, "Well, he never worked on any of the big cattle ranches, I'm like no, because it didn't make any sense for me to work on the big cattle ranches." Because when you work on those ranches, you have to ride their horses and you get very little money. And for me, I would rather, at at the time, I was taking horses in training and I got to choose the horses that I got to take in training. And then I was day working. So I was getting paid to ride the customer's horse and getting paid by the ranches to show up and and day work. So I got to ride good horses and I had more freedom. Um, and I I got to ride the horses the way that I felt was correct to ride the horses. When you work on the big ranches, you ride the horses the way they want you to ride the horses because it's their horses. Um, and when you day work, you're you've got a lot more control over what you're doing with the horses. But it that day working, you know, you get a call at eight o'clock at night and somebody says, "Hey, I need some help." Okay, when? Uh, be here at five o'clock tomorrow morning. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you load up the truck and you take your horses, whatever horses it is that you want to take. And that really depends on who you're working with. If I'm working with family, then you, t- you, you would take the the younger greener horses. If you're going somewhere where you didn't know the people, you would take something with a little more experience. And that again, just part of the, of the tradition of the culture. Yeah.
0: And, and what do you think of the importance of, of actually giving your horse a job to do like actually working cattle?
1: Oh, it makes all the difference in the world. Um, we, we saw it just this weekend. Um, one of the one of the girls came with a a young horse, got about thirty days of training on him. Um, and, and by the end of the weekend, there were a bunch of things that she had never done with that horse under saddle. Um, she'd never sidepassed the horse under saddle. She'd never done a rollback and brought that horse around and kind of turning on the hindquarters under saddle. She had Really done very little other than just kind of get the horse used to a rider and just kind of cruise around on a loose rein. And by the end of the weekend, she'd done a whole bunch of stuff. But because we had the cattle, <clears throat> it improved everything she'd already done, and it gave a reason for the new stuff the horse hadn't done before. So when she side passed the horse over to the cow, it it made more sense for the horse. It's like, oh, you want me to move over and make this cow move? Okay, cool. Um, it was very common for me like on the younger horses, when I was starting a lot of horses, that you know, the first time I would do, let's say a half pass on a horse, be really common. I'd be following a cow, the cow would kind of drift over to the side and I would just take the horse and half pass with him. So there was a purpose to it, it made it easy for the horse to learn. Um, and that's one of the kind of secrets, if you want to call it that, to those old Maccaro horses, those old California horses, was they spent a lot of time with a job, with a reason for doing the stuff they did. Whether it was a half pass, whether it was a lead change, you know, whether it was a stop and a rollback, there was a reason for it. And it not only um, helped the horse understand, okay, there's a purpose for this. It helped to avoid a lot of the monotony that a lot of horses suffer through because human beings, we are habitual animals. We have the habit of doing the same thing all the time, every time. And that's not a good way to train horses. Drilling horses is not a really effective way because horses, they start to tune out, just like people do. And when you can make it interesting for them, they learn better, just like people. If something's interesting and exciting, you learn better. If it's boring, it's the same old stuff, you just tune out.
0: Yeah. And uh, so your first book's the Hackamore book, and... You are well on your way to the second one, I believe.
1: The second one's finished, actually. Um, It's not published yet, but it's finished. Um, The second one is all on bits, uh, bits, bridles, mouth confirmation, um, the process, the old California process of um, taking a horse from riding in the hackamore and the bozelle up into riding in the bridle, um, which is a very different concept, even than most riding styles. We don't use the bit to train the horse. We train the horse in the hackamore and then we polish what we've already done in the bit. So we basically get the horse ready for the bit. We don't really use the bit to train the horse. Um, And then even the bits we choose for the horses, a lot of that is based on the confirmation of the horse's mouth. So there's a lot of that in the book. Why do we choose specific bits over other bits? What's the shape of the horse's tongue have to do with the correct mouthpiece? What about the height and the shape of the, the palate of the roof of the mouth? Um, where is the placement of the teeth, um, the bars, so that space between the, the, the front teeth and the premolars? Um, how is that shape? How much skin is around the bars? A lot of those kinds of things go into choosing the right bit. And that's all in the next in the next book. Um, we were hoping to have it published earlier, but what I decided to do instead of publishing it early, I actually sent the, the completed um, manuscript to two uh, two veterinarians who I know and respect who also ride. Um, one of them is my um, my good friend in Spain, um, who is a professor of veterinary medicine at the university in Cordoba, and he went through and reviewed it. And then another veterinarian who um, I haven't asked her permission to name her. So I'll wait until the book comes out. Um, and um, they reviewed it, went through it, looked through it, and also talked to some of their colleagues about what they found in it. Um, and I wanted to do that, to do that before I published the book to make sure that everything was absolutely correct in there. So, but yeah, it's done. Um we meet with the printer as soon as I've got a break in my travel schedule, in my insane travel schedule in the next couple of months.
0: Wow, that that's gotta be an art that's almost forgotten, you know, how to check a horse and bid it up properly.
1: It is. And we see a lot of problems with a lot of horses with their mouths because of it. Um, and we you can I mean, anybody watching this video can see it. All you have to do is go to the warm-up arena of any horse show. You'll see a lot of horses opening their mouths, um, kind of gapping their mouths, doing that kind of stuff. Um, or you'll see a lot of horses with their mouths tied shut. Um, anytime a horse opens their mouth and we pick up the rein, there's a problem. They either there's a problem with the bit or there's a problem with the rider's hands or both. So it's one of those things where um, a lot of that knowledge, um, I was lucky that my parents we're very particular about choosing the right bit. And then I've done a lot of study working with um, with different veterinarians. And like, you know, the the veterinary dentist there in Australia, you know, uh, I'm sure he gets tired of us peppering him with questions every time we see him. But, you know, it's I don't like things just being in the realm of theory. I, I wanna see what we can test and what we can prove. And then how does all of this apply to, how that horse works, how that horse, um, is able to function biomechanically. How much effect does the bit have on the biomechanics of the horse? So how does restricting the horse's tongue affect the muscles that connect to the base of the tongue? How do those affect because they tie into the, the chest and the shoulders? How does that affect the movement of the horse? All of those things. How does that chain of events change how my horse is able to work? So how can something super easy, like just changing the headgear, how can it have such a huge effect on the horse? But again, it comes back to biomechanics and asking why, why should I use this bit over another bit? Or why does the shape of the horse's tongue have a huge impact on what mouthpiece I should have in a specific bit? And we went through a bunch of that stuff in the book.
0: Wow. So that's book number two. I was thinking the next book was going to be the Two book. So I guess that is not the second book.
1: It the two the Two Rain is in there. Um. So it's Two Rain and the rest of it. Um. So another part of the book is the Two Rain process. So how we develop and we go from riding in the Hackamore, and then with the Bozell underneath the bridle, and then. To the bridle itself without anything under it so that's also part of the book um and in there there's a lot of stuff about how we handle the reins um the process of going through and transitioning from having nothing in their mouth to riding them with with some kind of of bridle um and even historically there's a little bit in there with some of the history of it and And not only the history of it in California, but worldwide, Um, when we look at those horsemanship styles who have developed the highest level of athletic achievement, they all had one thing in common. They worked on the nose first, and then they went from the nose to some kind of curb bit in conjunction with working on the nose, so both at the same time, before they rode in just the bit. Um, so we see that in the old Baroque horsemanship, we see it in the Spanish horsemanship still to this day, in Portugal, um, in California, that concept is very time proven. And and I know this is going to make a lot of people mad, but the snaffle bit wasn't part of that for most of that riding. It was nose, nose with some kind of curb bit, and then just at the curb bit.
0: Yeah. So is there going to be a third book?
1: There is, but we're going to have to wait on that a little bit. (laughs) That one's going to take a lot of research. Um, The third book, my wife and I are working on the third book, and I think we're actually going to do it as a video first. Um, Oh, that was something else I forgot to mention. Before I I went to the U.S. for a few months, we did a video um, series where we shot the entire Hackamore book on video. Um, As you know, doing videos yourself, the shooting the video is the easy part. The editing is the not so easy part. Um, So we haven't started the editing process because we literally shot the video and then I hopped on an airplane. Um, But that will be coming out. Um, And then so that was the Hackamore book, the, the Two Rain and Bridal book, is coming out very soon. And then the third the third video and book is biomechanics for the Western horse. And it's something that, again, we've decided to do because there isn't a lot out there specific to the Western horse. There's a lot of, you know, for the dressage horses, some for the Baroque horses, but specific to the, the Western horse. What does a, a a ranch horse need in terms of biomechanics? what goes into how they use their body when we're roping or working cows or doing that kind of stuff. And I'm writing that in conjunction with my wife. Um, my wife, for those who are watching this and don't know, um, she's not only a high level rider, but she's also a professional body worker. Um, so we're working in conjunction um, together on that book. Uh, but I think we're going to do it as a video first, but it will follow the book and the video will follow the same. The same outline, just like our Hackamore book and video are chapter for chapter the same. So, yeah.
0: So they're going to be DVDs or will they be sort of online videos? Or some...
1: Just online. Yeah, we have decided not to do any, any more DVDs. It's all just going to be downloadable. Um, it's just the time, the, the time of doing all the DVD stuff for me, the time constraints and just the headache. We've decided not to do it. Everything's just going to be online from here on out. Yeah we're expanding a lot um, this next year with all of our internet stuff. Um, we're focusing on that a little more this next year. So, yeah.
0: well, that's, that's great, isn't it? Because if you, if you change any thoughts of your own, you can just upload a new video instead of going, oops.
1: Yes, because I contradict myself a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but as, as new research comes out, as I learn more stuff, you know, it's important to, to update that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it, not that long ago I was was talking to my mom and we were watching an old video of me riding and my mom says, "Wow, you're riding a lot better now I'm like well, that was fifteen years ago I should be you know i, I should I should be riding better now um, and fifteen years from now if I'm not riding better than I am today then there's a problem i'm I've, I'm not learning I'm not progressing I'm not growing so it's important to be able to do that for me I think
0: yeah I, you know a few years ago I was with a high level instructor and and they they mentioned something just in passing that they probably think they've learned as much as they're ever going to learn. And I thought, wow. Ow. Put the lid on what you can learn.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, for me, one of the things that's interesting, you know, it doesn't matter how much you think, you know, there's so much in horsemanship that you can spend your whole life doing this and not even scratch the surface. And it, as I get older, I start understanding more of some of the old California vaquero um, saying some of their... You know, they would say that it takes five lifetimes to really become a good horseman. And it's because those guys who were really good understood how much they didn't know and how much there was still left to learn. Um, there, was, uh, there was a guy that some people watching this might have uh, followed him like on Facebook a little bit, a guy named Joe Bruce. He was an old vaquero that... Um, he died a few years back and I went to visit him. He was, um, he was in the hospital. He was uh, paralyzed at that point. Um, he could barely move one of his arms. Um, he knew he was never getting out of that hospital bed. And all of our conversations revolved around him asking me what I had been learning while traveling through Europe about some of the bridles, some of the bits and some of the stuff that, with the European horsemanship. He was still constantly learning, even though he knew he was never going to get out of that hospital bed, never get on a horse again. Um, And to me, that was like an amazing, um, just inspirational moment where I'm like, yeah, it never stops. His mind, he just, he wanted more, even though he knew he was never going to get on a horse again. So those people that say they've learned everything they need to learn, they've still got a lot to learn. Yeah, yeah.
0: Definitely. There's a lot, there's a whole lot to learn. I just can't wait for, you know, things to get better. And we get to see you here in Australia again, because it's been a long time without some eyes on me.
1: Well, I'm kind of, for me, I'm, I'm feeling the, the same thing. I've got, I've got some stuff that I really want to work on on my own horsemanship. And I go to some very specific places and very specific people for certain skills. And I, yeah, um, I haven't gotten to do much either. And there were some things that I wanted to do that were in my plans. And then, um, yeah, 2020 happened. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, that's really changed the world, hasn't it? But, uh... and
1: it has. It has. One thing though, that I think has been a positive is, and I'm seeing this kind of everywhere now, is a lot of people like you, and it's kind of motivated me, to put more stuff out on the internet, like what we're doing right now, to make some of this more broadly accessible, um, like my my bridle horse book, I wouldn't have gotten it finished if it hadn't been for the COVID stuff because I was home and you know my spring clinics got canceled because of COVID, so I got to finish the book. So I think there's been some a bit of a boom of information availability. Um, which can be a little tricky because there's good, bad, and ugly. Um, but I know for myself, my wife and I, as we're working towards that third book with the biomechanics, we've been able to find a lot more res- uh, resources online that weren't available just three or four years ago. So that's been, I think, a good thing for the horse horse um, community as a whole.
0: Yeah. Well, that's good. I really appreciate you spending some time with us today and and letting the you know the world know a little bit about what you do with your life.
1: No problem. Yeah.
0: People find out more information about you.
1: Um, the website is Californiabridalhorse dot com. Um, it's not been updated for a while. I've been focusing on a lot of other stuff, and I am very technologically challenged, as you as you well know. Um, so I've got somebody who's going to be working on that for me. I finally gotten smart and taken advice from people like you who said, you know, you might want to get somebody to help you with that. So um, that's uh, that's one. Um, also, if you search like on Facebook, on uh, my my personal profile, I can't I'm maxed out on how many friends I can do, but I have a business profile, too. So Jeff Sanders, California, the Carole horsemanship, I think is what it is because we couldn't make it any longer than that. That was, <laughs> um, um, but those are the two main, main places. So, and like I said, we're going to be putting a lot more stuff out there here in the next months, this winter, we're really focusing on getting updating and doing a lot more stuff online. So,
0: yeah. Well, keep, keep me updated, you know, and I'll share the information, whatever you, whatever you're up to with, with our fellows and see if, uh... Maybe we get together and do some videos when you're over here again.
1: Gotta be good. I'm looking forward to when we can travel and kind of do some of this stuff again. So, yeah, it's by the time that we're able to travel, I'm going to be bringing my, my little boy with me so he can come play with the kangaroos. He's going to be big enough to do that by the time we get all this stuff done with the COVID. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing,
0: you know, because, you know, your wife was just expecting last time we were talking your second child and I saw a picture on Facebook the other day. I'm like, oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah, she's right. She's horseback now. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep.
0: Time is flying past.
1: It is. It is. Yeah. But I appreciate the ability to, you know, your your invitation to come on and, and do this today. So, like I said, the more people, you know, the more information we get out there for folks, the better. So um, it can be a bit of a quagmire searching through it, through information online. But hopefully, you know, guys like you doing this kind of stuff, it's going to help.
0: That's good. What was the old line? You know, information free, accurate information, 50 bucks.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep.
0: <laughs> no worries. Well, thanks again, Jeff. We'll, we'll catch up next time.
1: You guys take care of yourself down there.
0: No worries. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to A Voice for the Horse podcast. You can find more information about Steve at stevehalfpenny.com.